Hello, Kevin. Hey, Dwayne. Are you ready to talk about DACA? I am. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is immigration, specifically the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. It was recorded on January 28, 2020. Here's who's joining us today. My name is Kevin Hernandez, and I am the policy director with the Libre Initiative, and I also help the immigration PI team as the policy lead. So let's get right into it. This is a this is um, something that there seems to be com- some confusion about. We hear the term DACA, we hear the term Dreamer. They seem to be used interchange. But let's talk. Let's start with with DACA. What exactly what exactly is DACA? Yeah. So DACA is a program that was created uh, under President Obama's administration back in 2012. Um, it is not technically a uh, legal status. Uh, it is a deferment. So it stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And so what that means is this under this program, for those who qualify uh, and have enrolled, met the necessary requirements, et cetera, they would be essentially shielded or deferred uh, from what would be deportations. And in order to do so, the folks who qualify or have qualified in the past would have had to arrive uh, prior to the age of 16 into the country were currently undocumented when they applied for this program or deferred action uh, and met necessary requirements in terms of uh, security and criminal uh, requirements, submitting medical records, uh, biographic uh, data, um, and and a whole sort of list of check marks that they had to go through. And so the people covered under that, those are the DACA recipients and the DACA program in and of itself is simply a a deferred action of deportation. So how does that differ from the term dreamers? Yeah, no. And that that's a really good question because the term dreamers is often floated out, uh, if anything, more common, uh, more commonly, excuse me, than the term DACA recipients. Dreamers uh, really represent a, the entire population of people who arrived uh, as children and uh, were undocumented or are undocumented. And so let me break that down for a second of what that could look like. So dreamers and the population, it's estimated to be about 2.3 million people who arrived under the age of 18 and are undocumented or were undocumented. So 2.3 million. Of those 2.3 million, there was then created, uh, there was a, the the DACA program was created uh, under President Obama in order to provide deferred action or to put off that deportation of these folks uh, for those who would have arrived prior to the age of 16. So it's already, the requirements are already, uh, I guess, uh, getting a bit tightened up. So it's it's folks who arrived as children, but prior to the age of 16. And of those DACA recipients, that population is smaller than the broader population of people who would have arrived prior to 18. So the estimated number of people who are DACA recipients currently is 600, a little over 650,000, while the broad population of people who arrived as children prior to the age of 18 
is an estimated 2.3 million. So there's that sort of uh, gap uh, in those numbers because it's, it's a smaller subset of this broader population of people uh, who arrived as children and are undocumented. So you hear this, this term dreamers, and very often it seems like it's almost a pejorative. Um, where, did, where did this term, you know, I, I hear dreamers and the common rebuttal of that is, well, my kids dream too, you know. And right. So where did this, this term come from, this, this uh, dreamers? What's, right. what's the origin story? Right, right. And it's not, it's not some sort of gold star uh, term that was created uh, to make people feel positive about a population. Uh, the term dreamers actually derived from uh, the original Dream Act, the bill in 2001, which was initially introduced to essentially uh, put an end uh, to this whole situation of children or people who arrived as children who were undocumented and were in limbo. So started in 2001 is when you started uh, seeing legislation and people trying to resolve this issue of, okay, these folks, you know, arrived here as children, are undocumented. What are we going to do? Because they don't have a path to, quote unquote, get in line and, and get right with the law. And so you really saw uh, Senator Hatch, um, uh, recently retired senator uh, out of Utah, who led that charge in 2001. Um, folks that have since taken up the mantle because obviously it didn't pass. Uh, senator Lindsey Graham has been a big proponent of the DREAM Act year after year. Uh, senator Dick Durbin has usually been the one that has paired up with either Senator Hatch or uh, uh, Senator Graham. And so the DREAM Act, what it would have done is it would have provided a solution and a path for that estimated 2.3 million uh, population of folks who arrived as children and were undocumented. It would have provided them a path to, uh, for lack of better terms, get in line, so to get right with the law by uh, submitting background checks, medical information, meet certain requirements of education and or work um, consistently in order to then be able to get in a line for a green card, um, which eventually, after a minimum of five years of having a green card, just like any other immigrant, um, would be able to then uh, follow the steps to become a citizen should they choose to. And so the DREAM Act because it covered that population of folks who arrived as children and were undocumented, they coined, they, uh, I don't know who exactly. So when I say they, I guess I'm, I'm a bit mistaken, but that, the, that nebulous, they a, out there. Exactly. So the, the term dreamers was essentially coined, uh, based off of that bill because that would have been the population that was covered. And that term has just stuck ever since. And so just for a very simplistic way of explaining it, the term dreamers uh, refers to people who arrived in this country as children uh, who are undocumented. And the term or the phrase DACA recipients represents the people who are currently enrolled in the DACA program that was created under President Obama, which that population is a little over 650,000. There may be a, a, a idea out there or a, a false belief that the community as a whole supports DACA. And I don't think that's accurate, is it? No, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of folks may or actually may not be aware, but um, uh, the Libre Initiative has actually been heavily involved in this debate uh, and discussion uh, and issue, frankly, because it's, a, it's an issue that we still feel, uh, especially as a community, that needs to be resolved. 
given the fact that there's so much uncertainty here just uh, at play. Uh, but the Libre initiative, I mean, we said it then and, and we continue to say it now, but DACA was never a permanent solution. I mean, it was, uh, quite frankly, a Band-Aid uh, approach to this issue. Uh, we had seen multiple pieces of legislation prior to 2012 when the administration decided to create this program and, and go around the legislative branch. But we, we saw numerous pieces of legislation introduced by Republicans and Democrats. I mean, it was a bipartisan issue. The issue was it was never passed into law. And so uh, I guess the, the sort of easy workaround that the Obama administration determined was that, okay, well, we will, through executive memorandum, um, put in this program of deferred action. So it's not some sort of legal status per se. It's uh, we're not going to deal with this right now so long as, you know, you meet the requirements, submit all this information, et cetera, et cetera. We know who you are. Um, so he went, the, he went the pin and the phone route. Yeah. I mean, I, that's that's as clear as you can be about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, and, and we, you know, we, we said that that was the wrong approach then. We continue to say it's the wrong approach now. And, and a big reason why we said it was a, the wrong approach then to not work with Congress to pass an actual law was because it was going to provide this population uh, a false certainty, right? And so what I mean by that is, sure, I mean, it has benefited a lot of people. I mean, it, it currently you know, is benefiting about 650,000 people, and they're able to work legally now. They're able to enroll in school. They're able to you know, drive and get driver's licenses. I mean, they're able to contribute to their communities. And, and a lot of them are active and very vital members of their communities. But what we said then was, what happens when another administration, you know, decides to change this? Or what happens when, you know, dreamers cannot, you know, realize their full potential? Because under this uh, program, the people have to renew every two years. So every two years, they're submitting renewal papers for their DACA uh, program or DACA status, I guess is what we'll call it. And with that comes, you know, $500 in renewal fees on top of continuing to submit and uh, meet all of the standards required, which, you know, is not, not extremely horrible, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's only right to know who all's here and what's happening. But what happens is if you're on a two-year renewal and your life is, is, is dependent on having that status renewed every two years, there's only so much that you can plan for and really maximize and, and, and reach your full potential. Because you don't know exactly if in two years, if your status is or is not going to be renewed, if the next administration were to change the program. I mean, living on a two-year cycle is not sustainable and it's not healthy for, for anyone. I mean, it's, it's, it, it doesn't benefit the DACA recipients. It doesn't benefit their communities, their employers. Uh, and so that's why we've always said a permanent legislative solution that Congress debates and enacts into law signed by the president is the best path forward to resolve any issue of uncertainty. And that way we can allow these folks to maximize and reach their full potential. So if, if I understand right, what, what we're talking about here is we had we have an issue. Congress tried to address that issue through the DREAM Act. There was a lot of resistance to that. It didn't pass. There's more legislation that came up, didn't pass. The Obama administration looks at this situation, says... I'm, I'm assuming we're not going to pass a bill. This, this isn't going to be handled. We're just going to 
say, defer this action and basically kick the can down the road uh, to a point where maybe there's a better environment where something like this could be handled. Uh, little did they know, <laughs> we have the, you know, the, the administration we have now. Um, a couple of things I want to get to. One, what are, what are the most common objections that people have to this action? Because when you, when you look at it, we have, we're talking about kids here who were brought to the country by their parents. They didn't sneak in, break the law. Um, so it would make sense that, look, we need to have a legislative fix to this, or there needs to be a solution to this. Um, but there, it would seem to me that there are a couple of things that I, I've heard before. And one of the most common things, and I'd, I'd like to hear your uh, response to this. One of the more common things that I hear is, look, if they've been in here in the country for so long, why don't they just become citizens? How, how are you supposed to respond to that? I mean, let's say let's say the kid's 16 now. They've been in the country since they were an infant. Why haven't they just become citizens? Yeah, no, and, and it seems like a logical question, right, to have is, well, if they've been here for several years, well, why have they not, you know, applied for citizenship, for right. example? That's a common thing. Or, or why have they not gotten in line? Um, and the the issue with those two, uh, I guess, misconceptions is that, um, one, because they are undocumented, there is no, they don't have an ability to um, get in a line or apply for a, through legal channels. Um we can get into this in a, in a separate podcast where we can dive into it. But 1996, uh, there were several laws passed. You know, uh, it was a year of being tough on crime. And I know the folks that work a lot on CGR know that that was a, a year and a time when, you know, that the focus was on locking people up. But also at the same time, with, the, with respect to the conversation on immigration, that was also a time when there were um, – a lot of either restrictions or barriers being put in place, which resulted in various uh, secondary consequences, which may or may not have been anticipated. But one of those is uh, in 1996, there were two uh, bars that were put in place, criminal bars. So essentially what these two uh, provisions did in the law is that anyone who was in the country unlawfully for a period of six months to 12 months has to leave the country for three years before being able to apply for anything to come back, whether it's a temporary visitors, tourist visa, or it's, you know, a green card or an employer sponsored. And if someone is in the country unlawfully for any time period over 365 days, then that bar increases to 10 years. So anytime after one year, if you're unlawfully in the country, you have to leave for 10 years before being able to apply through any legal channel. And so what that did is it created these perverse incentives for people who have been in the country prior to that 90, 1996 law, possibly, you know, between those six to 12 months, which is, you know, I'm assuming a very smaller population. Uh, but then you had the people who then looked at this new law and realized, okay, well, I've been in the country either a little over a year or for several years. And so I have to determine whether leaving for 10 years, applying through a legal channel, and possibly having the opportunity after another 10, 15, 20, depending on the, uh, the channel available, you know, where, where do I make those sort of trade-offs? Is this worth it? And so the problem is 
these bars essentially incentivized people to remain in the shadows. And that goes into a broader popula- you know, broader discussion of the undocumented population. The majority of these folks have been here for over 10 years. I mean, the majority of the undocumented population. And these that, that applies to the young kids who were brought into the country as well, doesn't it? So if you were brought in, if you were brought in in your mother's arms and you've been here 10 years, or let's say you've been here 15 years, you, you're, you're, you're 15, 16 years old, you've never known any country other than the United States. And if you go to get in line, like people say, then you are set, you're told you need to leave the country and you cannot apply to return for 10 years. Right. I mean, the, the whole, I guess the reason why I wanted to kind of uh, better illustrate that sort of picture of, of why uh, people maybe either one aren't allowed to get an A-line or why they're incentivized also, you know, uh, to, to remain in the country in the shadows, which doesn't benefit anyone. I can't imagine. I, mean, I can't imagine it. I would think that there are some some kids out there who didn't even realize they were undocumented. What's crazy is, yeah. I mean, there are. I mean, there are countless anecdotal uh, stories that I could give, but just to kind of bring this quickly back to the facts before I, I share this piece. But the average age of a DACA recipient, age of arrival to the country, is six and a half years of age, and so what you have is. You know, the, the average DACA recipient arriving at six and a half, six and a half with several, you know, arriving earlier than that, you know, anywhere from a year old, two years old. Um, you know, we we know of a, of a dreamer that we have collaborated with before who is in Texas who arrived at the age of one. He all he knows is Texas. I mean, he is Texas through and through. And the thing is with Texas people is they let you know right away that they are Texas. Absolutely. So you yeah. will never miss that. Uh, disclaimer, I'm not from Texas, hence why I did not make a shout out. Um, but you know, he has no recollection of Mexico, which is where him and his mother came from. All he knows is Texas. And, it, you know, even, even with the language, English is his first language. I mean, he, you know, he has picked up, uh, Spanish along the way, but it's not, it's not even something that, you know, he would necessarily feel comfortable uprooting if he had to. He wouldn't know, you know, the language as well, the opportunity. I mean, it's a country that he does not uh, relate to, that he doesn't um, uh, have many connections other than the fact that he happened to have been born there. And so when you look at the broader population of these DACA recipients and dreamers writ large, like this population of folks that came as children, like this this is the country that they know. These communities that they've grown up in are the communities that, you know, they call home and their neighbors consider them to be their neighbors. I mean, just like, you know, just like you and I and and everyone listening, you know, every single person, regardless of, you know, whether they came here one way or another, or whether they were born here, they all want to live in safe communities. They want to be able to work. They want to be able to contribute. They want to be able to uh, uh, practice and worship uh, freely. Like they want to be able to be productive members of of our communities. And so how is it that we can, you know, as, as a stand together community, tackle this issue that has been riddled with just partisanship divides and inaction since 2001? I mean, it's been an issue where both parties, for example, have, have worked together on this. It's never moved across the finish line. Why is that? What, what's the big opposition there? What's, what's keeping this from getting across the finish line? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if I had if I had that answer, uh, you know, ideally we we may have been able to solve this sooner, but it's it varies. So, two thousand one compared to today, the discussion on immigration is very different mm -hmm. for several reasons. Two thousand and one was the height of uh, illegal border apprehensions along the southern border. I mean, close to two million people a year. I mean, that was the peak. Since then, it has de-escalated significantly. Um, but in terms of the conversation, right now, it seems as if uh, the issue of immigration and even the issue of dreamers, it's not something that people are willing to uh, take a scalpel to address a very specific issue, but rather one that they can use to score political points and attach poison pill uh, provisions and then the end result is nothing so you know we saw this actually um, in in early uh, it was uh, early February of 2017 where we saw in the Senate four different bills being put for a floor vote right it was it would have been um, a permanent DACA solution would have been border security and there were some that had several other things lumped on there the bill that received the most votes was one that was most narrowly tailored. It was a solution, a permanent solution that would have covered 1.8 million dreamers. So it would have given them the ability to, uh, to work toward that path to a green card, a legal status, which is actually was part of the White House's uh, plan that they had released. It was a four pillar plan for immigration. So that was one component. And they paired it with $25 billion for border security infrastructure, um, roads, bridges, walls, uh, technology, personnel, et cetera, which was a compo another component of that four pillar plan that the White House released. Um, the problem is not, not enough people voted for it because there was a separate bill um, that the leadership in the Senate had been uh, advancing. And so that was their bill. This other one was the one that I just described that received the most votes was from a quote-unquote common-sense coalition of folks from both sides working together trying to find a reasonable solution. And it's our take that, you know, if we keep this narrowly focused, if we said, okay, we acknowledge border security is an issue, we acknowledge that this dreamer solution is an issue, let's work, you know, with whoever it takes to find something that can get uh, enough consensus to pass. And, and the more that you pile additional items on, the less likely that it's going to become law. Right, right. It's easy to poison that that one bill. Right. When uh, this administration took office, very uh, opposed to, it, it seemed, even legal immigration. And there was talk of, of uh, doing away with, with, uh, with DACA, but that hasn't happened. What What's their take on it now? What's going on now with, with this? And what is it, you mentioned before, you want a permanent legislative solution is that that's what we're looking for regarding this issue so let's let, that's two questions kind of different let's start with where's this administration at with this right now sure so um just to kind of backtrack a little bit to uh look at how we got to present day uh the administration announced in uh in 2017 sorry my ears are getting confused because it's early 2020 and i still can't believe that but in late 2017, uh, there was the announcement that DACA would be terminated. It would be uh, 
go through a phasing out period. Um, so within, I believe it was five months, um, the program would end. And so the uh, some of the rationale that was, um, I guess, used uh, in in communications pieces by the administration, they said, you know, this will spur Congress to act because without a deadline, they don't do anything. And so, you know, you started getting a little bit of traction, people talking about it on the Hill. Okay. Then the White House releases this four pillar plan of what needs to be done on immigration. Um, and then what happens is you get into the new year. So early, early 2018 and you start getting court, uh, Courts get involved in this. And what I mean is uh, there were lawsuits filed against this action by various groups um, and lawsuits filed against the termination of this program. So then you start getting uh, you start getting uh, circuit courts involved around January, February, and then there were injunctions that were issued. So nationwide injunctions, essentially uh, telling the president that he could not terminate this program. And I say this, or I kind of bring this up because what that does is it takes a bit of the wind out from behind the sails in terms of momentum for Congress to act because there was an injunction in place. There was a sort of sense of uh, uh, less urgency in part of, of needing to act because the courts were holding this and, you know, for the time being, uh, there weren't going to be any folks deported, you know, let's, let's just, you know, but even, even with this going on, um, the Senate voted on those four bills that I mentioned. Um, the one that received the most votes was the narrowly tailored one, which, you know, we were, we were hopeful that would have passed that would have addressed the concerns about border security and the funding that the president was, was asking for coupled with the the solution, which the president also had, had called upon, for the dreamers, we thought that those pairing those two things up would have received enough consensus, and it was common sense, right? To pair those two, it, no poison pill provisions. Both sides are going to have their issues to gripe about, but both could also, you know, be content with what they received. Both sides politically is what I mean. Um, that bill received the most votes. The bill that received the least amount of votes was actually the one that the leadership in the Senate was pushing, um, because that included. Um, significant poison pills, and I'll just say that candidly because it included provisions which would have cut legal immigration levels by 40 to 50 percent over the next decade. And so that was something that uh, as a community, we, we put our foot down, not just publicly uh, in, in, in mentioning how um, concerning that was, uh, that we went from having a discussion about you know, solving this issue of DACA and solving the issue of border security to people getting behind a solution that would have cut legal, legal immigration levels by 40 to 50 percent over the next decade. That was, in our opinion, you know, and I'll say egregious. We didn't say egregious in any statements, but it's something that we will, uh, in terms of our POV, we will continue to put our foot down on anything that is attempting to cut or reduce legal legal immigration levels or further restrict the future flows. So what I mean by that, if we, we see that we already have a lot of issues 
that have popped up, whether it's border security or the years of backlogs that people have to wait, this all creates perverse incentives. And if we're not addressing the root cause of this, which is the broken immigration system, then you know we're not going to be in a better place, regardless of how much money we pour into you know border resources, the interior. We've done all that, but what we haven't done over the past 30 years is look at the crux of the issue, and we have not reformed the legal immigration system. So cuts are something that for us is off the table. It does not make any sense. It will further increase the incentives for people to come here outside of our laws. Um, and frankly, I mean, it, it just, it, it's something that also goes very much against our, our principles of, of openness uh, in particular. What I find most interesting uh, about this process as it's gone through is the Trump administration didn't end DACA for the purpose of widespread deportations. They didn't say, we're going to end this program and we're going to start busing people across the border. The reason they ended the program was to get Congress to do their job, to, to basically take action and solve the problem, not, not give, him, give the, the administration an excuse to start deportations. The Trump administration seems to want a solution to this problem, too. They just want, like the community, the solution to come through the, the, the right channels through Congress in law. Yeah. And, and I, I guess just to add a caveat to that, that while, yes, they stated publicly that this was done because they knew it would actually get Congress to work and, you know, get off their tails and get something done. Um, but also the rationale that they used to uh, eliminate the program was essentially on the grounds of this was done by the executive uh, who was here before me. And so, therefore, I, as the executive, should be able to uh, terminate this. So, in terms of legal arguments, that was uh, essentially what they used, and the courts are still looking at that. I mean, there's the Supreme Court has that right now on their on their docket. They've had oral hearings, uh, oral arguments, excuse me, and a decision is is uh, going to be coming down anytime soon from the date that you're listening to this podcast, if it hasn't happened already up until uh, any time from he here to June that a decision could come from the Supreme Court. And they're, they're mainly looking at two things, though, um, and it's important to, to note that. Is one is whether, um, whether this was even uh, the termination of DACA is even reviewable by the courts, like if, if that is even allowed to be reviewed, the administration's decision to do that. And then if so, whether it's lawful, for the administration to do that, whether it's legal for them to do that. I mean, all from, from, you know, uh, all sort of, uh, uh, legal experts, uh, both on the left, uh, and the right have kind of led folks to believe that sure, the administration is likely within their rights to terminate this program. Um, and so what's happening right now is Congress is not talking about the issue. What will happen is it's going to be talked about in the media and in Congress once the Supreme Court decides something. The problem with that mentality is this can all be resolved without waiting on the courts. If Congress were to, to you know, debate and put a bill together and pass it, it would make the Supreme Court case moot. Um, but what you're 
what you have today and what we'll see is the Supreme Court will come down with a ruling sometime soon. Uh, legal experts predict that it's likely that the administration was allowed to terminate this program, which means at some point there will be a date where this population who is currently covered under this deferred action will begin to be deported. Um, and so that ruling will create some sort of urgency to act, ideally enough urgency to act on passing a permanent solution. But the risk that's also at play is that Congress puts together another Band-Aid approach, kicks it down the road. Because, I mean, it, I mean it's, it's, it's an election year, so that's factored into it in terms of the politics. Uh, but another Band-Aid fix is just going to put us in the same spot that, you know, everyone find themselves themselves in today and you know frankly when president obama created the program in 2012 i mean if people if people truly cared about this issue and if those that claim that they want to do right by dreamers uh really mean that then a permanent solution needs to be the priority i mean because other than that it's going to be this continued uncertainty of what's going to happen depending on who's the president or what the political dynamics are on the hill and so, you know, there needs to be something put together and understanding that border security concerns are also relevant right now. There should be some sort of common ground there. And there is. And the majority of Americans actually agree with that, with pairing those two issues together, uh, being the right solution to move us forward. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.